Welcome to the Space Cave, a big warg to all of you Spaceburgers out there. I'm David Huntsberger, joining you in this safe little enclave, tucked in the furthest reaches of our known universe, safely removed, away from all the chaos, reflecting back on maybe some of the positive things that do exist in the world, one of them being interesting conversations with intelligent people. Have one of those queued up for you. It goes without saying that the views expressed represent only my guest and not any place of employment or place he'd be affiliated with. They are strictly his own. Nothing that controversial at all comes up. It just is beneficial to say that. And I want to maintain a good relationship with the science community so that they know this is a safe space where they can come and talk about their cool experiments. And this is one of the coolest studies, um, research experiments, whatever you'd want to call it, that we at this show at least, and I include all of us because anyone listening has a vested interest, uh, has been shared, I feel like, or at least I was going to say one of the top three. I think it is the number one, a cooler on the International Space Station designed to super cool atoms and test the uh, effects that zero gravity and low temperature would have on them, which sounds like sci-fi stuff. It sounds like things that humans could never get to, that we'd always ponder and wonder about, and yet they have done it. And so if you haven't listened to part one of our chat from maybe a year or a little more ago, I highly recommend going back to do that. And then he sent a follow-up, or he sent me an email and just said, hey, in case you're curious, here's how that study turned out. And I was so, I felt so great to be attached to that, to be a part of it. Um, and I hope you do as well. I'll share the the article um, once this episode is out, either at spacecave.com or Twitter, space underscore cave. But here you can hear all about it. And it just feels great. I hope you feel excited as a part of this little community of ours that um, we now have a horse in the Nobel Prize race. And that feels exciting. So here uh, we are. This, this chat catches up kind of midway through. Um, and this is focusing mostly just on the experiment. If you'd like to hear the beginning chat where we're just kind of shooting the breeze... That's available to Patreon subscribers, and thanks again to everyone uh, who does support the show that way. It makes a big difference. Anyway, here is our chat about the CAL project, the Cold Atom Laboratory, and uh, here's a nice sit-down over Zoom with a really fascinating fellow and a nice guy, Dave Avalon. Let's read this paper. I've, I don't want to waste too much of your time. For a couple minutes. So are you, are you going to record now? <laughs> yeah, let's start recording. <laughs> okay, so David C. Avaline on this paper, as well as one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten, ten other people. So it's a big group, yeah. big team. Oh, and there's bigger, just so that I can at least give the call out. I mean, there's a huge team of people uh, that 
really helped get everything to come together. And there's an acknowledgement section with a huge list of people, and there's even tons of people we can't, we couldn't get to in that. So, in terms of a co-author list, yes, there's 11 of us uh, <laughs> that, that put this together. That's awesome. <laughs> Collaboration, science, teamwork. Yes, yeah, exactly. That's great. And and there's there's like what's kind of exciting about this particular project is around the world there are other groups collaborating with us. So it's just it's not just the US thing and NASA thing, which there's it is it is in Europe, it is we've brought in postdocs and we have people coming in and going and it it's it's a, a facility that is kind of um unlike a lot of other in the cold atom, you know, business, if you will, we don't, usually we're making a system that's very dedicated to one person's, we'll say one person or one team's, you know, what they're striving for. And they're going to make this measure and make it as best they can. This is a system that's really tries to look at something from a lot of angles. And mm -hmm. so you do have contributors from basically across the globe and, all the people, all the things that have to come in play to get it up there and for it to work with the ISS being built <laughs> over the last, you know, from 20 years ago and all the people that continue to send things up there with, with supplies and astronauts and coming, th things coming back down. And anyway, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's would be hard to cover all the contributing parts, but that's kind of what also makes it, um, exciting to kind of look back at of like, all these things had to kind of come together and work just right for this to even make this one cold spot for like a second, <laughs> you, know, you know, and then, and then it was a ruined cause I looked at it, you, know, you shine light in there and you make it hot and it's destroyed and it's gone, but well, let's, let's do it again. And then, you know, do the process again and again. So it's, um, yeah. Yeah, right. that, it's got to feel so good to be a part of that level of human collaboration and teamwork and the pursuit of something unknown that everyone gets excited at the same time. Like, we just learned something that humanity did not know prior to this. Yeah, I mean, that that is a, a, an element of it that got it rewarding on the on the back end. <laughs> <laughs> like, as we were going, it's easy to just kind of be focused on what you're doing in, you, you know, your in your world and then i think looking back at this especially over the last year or two when it's been launched it was a big appreciation for all those things that had to come together to get it just right so. mm -hmm. okay here we go right. yeah quantum Please. mechanics governs the microscopic world where low mass and momentum reveal a nature wave particle duality magnifying quantum behavior to macroscopic scale is a major strength of the technique of cooling and trapping atomic gases in which low momentum is engineered through extremely low temperatures Advances in this field have achieved such precise control over atomic systems that gravity, often negligible when considering the individual atoms, has emerged as a substantial obstacle, which that was something that stood out to me. Like, I think we had talked about that before, um, and that was cool to see that that um, had been revealed. In particular, although weaker trapping fields would allow access to lower temperatures, gravity empties atom traps that are too weak. Additionally, inertial sensors based on cold atoms could reach better sensitivities if the freefall time of the atoms after release from the trap could be made longer. Planetary orbit, specifically the condition of perpetual freefall, offers to lift cold atom studies beyond such terrestrial limitations. 
Here we report production of rubidium Bose-Einstein condensates, which later becomes uh, a common reference in this paper, BECs, Bose-Einstein condensates, in an Earth-orbiting research laboratory, the Cold Atom Lab, which is such a cool name. And you gave me that sticker. I love it. The Cold (laughs) Atom Cal. We observe uh, sub-nano-Kelvin BECs in weak trapping potentials with free expansion times extending beyond one second providing an initial demonstration of the advantages offered by a microgravity environment for cold atom experiments and verifying the successful operation of this facility. With routine BEC production, continuing operations will support long-term investigations of trap topologies unique to microgravity, atom laser sources, few-body physics, and pathfinding techniques for atom wave interferometry. Interferometry? You got it, yep. Oh, great. So all of that, that I feel like was beautifully written. And there were just a couple parts toward the end where I had to do that thing where I had to stop and reread it. Like, uh, no, I get it. Okay. Like, get, it's everything we talked about. And then as it goes along, there were parts where I was starting to get like, whew, that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> but one thing I loved, and I think that, and I didn't print it out to highlight it. So I'm, I'm just scrolling, but was in the free fall period, finding that like getting about one second is that right? Yes. Right. You got, we got to a little over one second, um, uh, I think 1.1 1. 1 and change or something seconds. Um, the So the key part of that, though, is at some point the atoms, we could, one could assume fairly <laughs> that they are, we're sort of plotting it out and you have this trajectory that they take. Um, and so we can, we can keep taking these images and we're basically each run is, um, is destructive. So you've made, you've you've prepared your your atoms. You've cooled them. Um, it takes a couple seconds by the time it's been made. Then we release them. So you let go of all your you know you try to turn off all your trapping fields, and um, they can sort of propagate freely. They tend to expand because they have some finite temperature, even though they're extremely cold, they're going to spread because they've got some leftover kinetic energy, some, some little residual velocity. And if, and did you know where that, is that normal? Did you know where that was coming from? Is that, did that, was that one of those things like a carburetor? Like what in the hell is causing that? When they tend to spread, you know, at the end. Sure. So on the ground, um, and this is, so this is well understood even going into this, that by the time we're done bringing them down this cold and they form a BC, um, they even, when they're in a BEC state, they sort of have a pressure on each other. So each atom, um, in a, specifically, I'll just, I'll, I'll refer to rubidium 87. They have a, like a, a um, not an attractive, but a repulsive force between them. So when you get close enough with rubidium atoms, they tend to push away from each other. And in some ways, you kind of need that to be able to make the BEC, because if they actually had an attractive force, they would pull together, then they collide, then they even scatter more. So you, it's like we have this, there's this nuance of getting enough repulsion, but not so much repulsion, but you get them really cold, get them all very close together. They'll form this sort of quantum state that we call the BEC. When you let go of them out of this trap where they're you could consider this their ground state. So they're as cold and as low energy as they're going to be. They now don't have any of that exterior sort of trapping field holding them together. So that repulsion is what 
pulls them apart again. They're going to pu push on each other. At some point, they push on each other far enough that they're not forever. I mean, they are forever pushing on each other, but that falls off fast. So there's a stage at which they have pushed off on each other and they're spreading out with this residual velocity. That's why I don't, if you look in the paper, you're going to see sort of a shape form where they get kind of oblong. They go from, they go from a trap shape that is maybe sort of cigar-like or a football. So it means that it's tighter on one axis than it is on another. Mm -hmm. And then because of this sort of push-off effect, they tend to expand more along the direction that they were tighter and closer together because they've got more repulsion and the direction that was looser is going to stay cooler. So in that figure or that set of figures, you see um, a plot or you can see a plot of that center of mass, kind of the direction that they're flowing out as a whole. Uh -huh. but you also can see this width and the widths are now, there's two different axes. You know, one width is separating a lot slower than the other. And that's why in the end, we also say effective temperature, like the spread of one axis is equivalent to a couple hundred pico Kelvin. And the other axis is equivalent to a, you know, a few hundred more pico Kelvin. And usually the pro, you know, true in thermodynamics, uh, temperature is that is that collective leftover kinetic energy of a whole ensemble of atoms or particles. So they don't really have one axis being different than another. And when you get to this quantum gas, this BEC, that's one of these sort of defining characteristics is we call it anisotropic flow. The fact that it doesn't just isotropically expand like a sphere, mm -hmm. it, it expands kind of more like an ellipse. And what you're seeing at that, I mean, microscopic is even an understatement. It, it, on the plot, some of it is like a gradient, like little tiny particles that you're seeing a haze almost of like pixels. So it's not oh, like... Oh, yeah. So exactly. We also had to do... So when you get to these really long uh, expansion times, so I know one second maybe to everyday life doesn't sound extremely long, but to put it into some perspective on the ground, just in, in the same system, we did these experiments, you know, we can do these um, experiments on the ground just to get, make sure everything's tuned up and we're making uh, these cold atoms. We at most could see about 40 milliseconds. So that's 0 0.04 seconds. And by the time we've gone 40 milliseconds, they have fallen out of the view completely. So they fall our our laser beam that's doing the imaging is about 10 millimeters i'm, I'm roughly estimating a few just so a, t a centimeter mm -hmm. which is um which is Pretty less than laser. half of an inch yeah for anyone who's maybe more familiar with inches so so within that that partial inch they've already fallen you know many tens in, within tens of milliseconds they fall out of view and in with microgravity, the fact that we can like let go of them and they just hover there, for one, we now need to battle with that center of mass motion. You, we don't, we can't let them go in a way that they tend to drift out fast because they'll just, they will still drift out of view within a hundred milliseconds or hundreds of milliseconds. So one, one challenge is to get them released very carefully, so and symmetrically. The other is getting them cold enough so that by the time you look a second later, they're not so dilute that you can't see them anymore because they get below your 
um, imaging sensitivity. We're basically shining light through them. They cast a shadow because of their density. Like they are, they're going to absorb some of that light and then rescatter it in different directions. And you need a certain density of atoms. Otherwise you, your light just goes straight through and you barely, you know, if it just scatters a photon, you're not going to necessarily detect that that photon went missing. But if it scatters tens or, ten, you know, usually hundreds and thousands of photons, you're going to, we're going to be able to detect that. So at 1.1 seconds in that, in those figures, that's when we're like at this edge of being able to resolve that there were atoms there. They got large enough that they're dilute and you, we have to do some image interpolation, you know, and basically averaging between some shots in order to, to convince ourselves that atoms are there. Mm -hmm. But going back to what I was going to say, was saying earlier, you basically could make a fair assumption. They're still there a second and a half later and two seconds later and later. We just, uh, we can't tell you that they are this size anymore. You know, we can make <laughs> predictions and extrapolate to what size they would be and where they would be and make fa fairly accurate. Is that a new, that. because you're still guessing at that spot, you know, knowing that trajectory and being able to know the shape and size, say the entire, yeah. like further and further. Yeah. Do you think that's the next step getting to where we can predict that? Yeah. And well, one of the next steps besides that too, there are techniques that are being done that are a little more, we'll call it more sophisticated than what we were even doing on the outset to try to do this. So what you can do is as you're releasing the atoms, you can shape that magnetic field and basically we kind of call it like a magnetic lens. So there's some investigators that are trying to tailor the timing and shape of that magnetic field that's being applied so that the cloud as it comes out as it's being released gets kind of tweaked in, you know, let's say the left to right or squeezing versus pulling. And that way that is like in a sense kind of collimating the atoms and in collimating them is these are kind of using optics terms for the atoms, but they will stay that same size for longer. And that is, that's effectively like getting them a lot, a lot colder. So there's, there are some, teams that are kind of looking into these techniques to uh, apply pulses of these magnetic fields later and shape them into what would appear to be colder shapes basically mm -hmm. like or or la they persist longer in view and there's also other other schemes of like this process we call it adiabatic expansion it's this very slow release and expansion of the trap until there's basically no trap there that they get lower and lower energy as they get um, spread out. And if you do that correctly and don't in, impose too much um, residual velocities, you can also get extremely cold. So there's, there's a few techniques that are, that have taken months and even we'll call it years of getting a lot of data on exactly what are the fields doing inside the system, exactly what's the timing to get right. And that therefore, by the time we, they steer these atoms out of the, the cloud, they are very much controlling the shape of the, that, of that cloud. Um, so that's, those are really where the, have been the next steps um, besides 
I mean, we can basically make projections and know where to look for the next cloud, so to speak. Like in that trajectory, if we just took the same exact approach, we know the next time we look at 1.4 seconds, they're going, they should be here. Mm -hmm. And you can do more averaging and, and certain methods to like pull them out of the noise up there. But that in to some regard that starts to become a brute force. It's a, it's a different challenge. I mean, if we can get them even colder, like I say, with these other methods, that means you, you open the door for much longer observations. And in general, the idea of getting longer observations is really towards these sensors. So basically you start being able to use the atoms as these wave, the wave nature of the atoms as a sensing device. So, so ra now, like rather than use a laser, you mean something that's not going right, to so, heat them up? Yeah. So a laser interferometer, we're going to use that wavelength of the laser to sense either motion between some mirrors or um, we're going to use the interference of these different waves of the laser light to sense, let's say, displacement of a mirror. Okay. That, that would be, we're going to, with the atoms, we can do the same sort of things, except atoms now carry a mass and can be sensitive to, for instance, gravity. So the idea would be, and this is taking it one or two steps further, is you can do these sort of interference measurements with atoms and when they have they, these atoms now have a longer sort of effective wavelength and they have a mass so they are instead of light that sure it gets there is still some their gravity does affect light but a lot less so than something that has a significant mass so mm -hmm. uh we're moving towards like experiments that could be we call it Einstein's equivalence principle, kind of probing, is there a difference between the way a potassium atom falls compared to a rubidium atom? And it's because they have very subtle difference in mass that we could try to explore, is there something about that difference in mass or at a more fundamental level, even inside there, maybe the number of the types of particles and subatomic particles that are in there that would deviate from this equivalence principle the fact that it doesn't matter what mass it is it will always get the same acceleration uh from another mass that's like <laughs> Earth, for example so those are the like further that's some of the the sort of higher level science that that this system is supposed to move towards or at least in be the beginning you know steps of you can use these atom interferometers to measure forces down to extremely small levels and, and gravity is just one you can use them to look at rotation sensitivity or other accelerations even magnetic and electric fields and and the um, the like weak and the strong the four fields and and i think we talked about that last time is do, and i think i asked you last time does this get you a little closer or us as humanity and like talking about like on the standing on the shoulders of giants thinking of Einstein being able to watch what you've seen, I would imagine would have made him run outside and go and just go nuts. Like, <laughs> can you believe this? I'm pretty sure he's quoted. Um, so I'm not going to get the quote right, but I'll just say, I'm pretty sure he made some statement to the effect of, well, this is all interesting, but it's not ever going to, it's not like a real, it's kind of like an interesting mathematics about bosons and stuff. 
not necessarily to be ever realized or achieved. Like that was kind <laughs> of a, I, I hope I'm crediting it properly to him, but uh, he's of the, he, Bose, the, the physicist Bose is the one who kind of initially formulated this and showed it. And I think even tried to get it published. And then it was Einstein that, that I think got, got wind of it or got sent to him and they collaborated and it kind of gave credit to it because yeah no there is something here to this <laughs> and it is very interesting but it was maybe more or less like uh, like this is kind of some cool mathematics of it and this is what would happen but we'll never be able to like get down to boson you know to to, control the bosons, to so. examine it further well first of all this is an anecdotal thing but i working on uh, my chainsaw a while ago hello tony hello lee uh, I had this little filter from the tiny carburetor that I blew some carburetor cleaner into and this tiny, like a butterfly eyelash filter flew out of my hand and into the backyard. And then like Rick Moranis and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, I went through every method I could think of with magnifying glass. I used a magnet. I got, I built a sieve and was like screening my whole backyard. And then I think the the lockdown was really getting to me Wait, at that yeah, point. Yeah, when was this? I'm assuming this was in the last few months. Yeah, this okay, was, right, yeah. This was in that, that sweet. That makes more sense. Yeah, this was in the sweet spot of like I think I'm going insane. Yeah. And then I, I lined out after that, but. That feeling of not being able to see something that small that's completely visible to the naked eye was very frustrating. And to think of you guys 0. 0.04 or 4 nanoseconds, you were saying? It was, so normally, yeah, it would be a 0. 0.04. Sorry, <laughs> now I'm confused. 0. 0.04 seconds. 0. So it's like 40 okay. milliseconds worth of time would be kind of the most we could see in that in that particular right. instrument. And okay. then someone goes, I've got great news. We can see it. A little more clearly. Here's the bad news. It's remotely. It's going to be on the space station in a <laughs> cooler. And you go, how are we ever going to see something remotely? The technology involved, everything, the laser, oh, yeah. everything That's involved, fine, that yeah. it even kind of worked. And I know we talked about like a hierarchy and whatnot, and not to discredit anyone. When someone fixes an old engine and goes, I think this should work, and then it, it rumbles the first time they turn the right. key is amazing to me that someone could put all the things together to make the spark and combustion and fuel and everything else work. So say you progress further. So you, you guys put Einstein's, not a dream, something he thought was incomprehensible, unattainable. And here's humanity. We'll never create time travel. Well, let's hold off on that because we figured out this and it's, yeah, it's slow. It went from 0.04 seconds to now 1.1 and change seconds and then we're getting an idea of where it kind of moves beyond that like an idea in the same way that we mm -hmm. kind of know what this carburetor is doing maybe 20 years from now 30 years from now it'll oh, be yeah. like a game of pong and they'll very slowly be able to have eight seconds of it bouncing around or moving oh yeah i mean there's already just i mean just to put that into some perspective there are there are a lot of ways to achieve similar goals and so i mean whether whether it's putting something in orbit so that it's i mean that now it's just constantly in free fall in principle you could just if you could actually make it so close to zero that it just hovers there and doesn't actually spread at all you could be watching it constant i mean other than every time you go to take a look at it you're gonna mess it up so then you're gonna all right let's start <laughs> And let's try to look longer next time. But if I'm uh, Jeff Bezos, I like don't use the space station. You guys, I'm assuming, need, need grant money 
Take a billion go, dollars. You could take it to a spacecraft and just carry it out and then do it further away, but with not, you know, or in some Lagrange point. Um, one of the big things that it, NASA is um, moving towards next is like a lunar, um, uh, they call it a lunar gateway. So it's like, it's basically uh, similar to like an ISS orbiting Earth, but this is now for the moon. And there's places you can put it where the microgravity is even better. And so like, I don't know, all of these then look to us like, oh, good, let's try to fit our science there. But there's a lot of other, a lot of other types of science or ideas that you could do with that that isn't you know necessarily cold atoms. Um, there's also people building on the ground amazingly complicated structures like towers and and even elevators so you can make your elevator go up and down and make it go up at the just the right rate that it that it well you can make it go down at just the right rate <laughs> that we comp compensate for for what would be you know a g mm -hmm. and and i think over time they're kind of we just tend to you can approach something from so many angles that you can make the technologies i mean in the in the meantime one of the biggest things is making all of those smaller component level technologies that can handle whether that's the accelerations or because you're taking it to a new environment now it gets radiation exposure in space or it gets slammed down to the ground because it lands after you've dropped it from a tower so the we're incrementally improving all of these different technologies, the lasers, the current drivers, the, the computers, the software that we use, the imaging techniques. Um, and so I think, I think it's just getting to a point where sure in 20 years, it's not even what I'm imagining, you know, we're going to be kind of probing levels of this that I'm, I'm certainly not already imagining. I just, I, some of that, sure, will will be the bottom end of it, but there's some going to be the next group of people that take it to even greater extents. So uh, there's people that are just showing now. You don't, you can. By the way, you don't even have to let go of them completely. You can do some of these amazing studies while they're being held in an optical lattice. So like, <laughs> there's certain technologies that can just break the mold, right? That'll like, oh, you know what? I can actually do this with this other system. Yeah. And sure, maybe that has other limitations. It can't necessarily reach all of the same areas that another thing does, but it that those these kind of things happen I luckily for us every every year, every 5 years, every 10 years. So I think we're going to see a lot. I mean, this field has already been a bit of a surprise to a lot of people that like in the 80s or 90s thought the holy grail of it was to get to a BEC and mm -hmm. show that you can make a BEC. I don't even, I'm sure some people were foreseeing that then that means it's a bigger field after that, but I don't know because then since then this field on its own became its own sort of big field and then was is more is much bigger than what it was in the mid nineties when any of this was first seen. So it kind of puts that in perspective that, that, it's always gonna just keep growing and with the next the next amazing breakthroughs you can get something you really didn't imagine and it could affect parts of our life that we weren't originally thinking you know yeah. whether that's medical or other geology things or you know I think, uh, I just, weather I systems that, for all i know i don't know 
It's just, uh, it, it reminds me of the first time someone put like a pickaxe or there was just an explosion and they just stumbled along a creek and saw gold. I'm like, what could this be? And then, you know, the frontier is yet to be explored. It's just the first kind of, first yeah. nugget kind of, you just bit into it in a way. And that excites me that in science fiction, sometimes they'll have these things where uh, you and your team end up moving off to a different planet and then everyone else, the rest of us are left here fighting it out and watching editorial news after 7 p.m. and <laughs> bickering. And and then you root for that like mysterious kind of weird genius to show up and, and like you were saying, do it not in like an um, optical way, but like jokingly, I think it's so funny. Someone being like, oh, you need ice cubes and a fish tank and a flashlight. I did the same Favorite. thing, you know, like that <laughs> human ingenuity. But I, it, I would hope something like this does not only get bigger as far as a field, but the people that are in the field, that it is bringing in kids that are excited to yeah, move I, ahead. I do, I, that is a big part of this. And is, is that outreach and that, um, I do think Na NASA has been, uh, doing a good job of it and should be continuing to like anytime we have these launches um or the landings on mars or i i think there that were there's more investment going into that outreach and making sure people are aware of of these you know amazing accomplishments because it does help inspire the next generations and you get, we gotta we gotta kind of take away this, this sort of stigma of being nerdy or you're never going to, or even not a stigma, but just like, Oh, it's, it's beyond what you're going to get. Like you might not get that, but that's for the nerds or something. And right. Like, that's, I think that if we all had, you know, a little, a little bit of a, um, more support and kind of excitement about learning that next layer that can kind of propel another, the next generation of, of scientists in STEM. In Hell general. yeah. Well, it's a, yeah. it inspires me. And again, I, I feel, <laughs> I feel attached to it. I more, feel... I'll send you more, uh, of, uh, of, of the publications and things that come along. Please cool. do. Yeah. I, right. I really, I've, I've never had a horse in the Nobel prize race before. And you can say <laughs> that that's not an option, but to me it is. So don't take that from me. I really, I won't take it away from you, but they did give, they did give, uh, a couple Nobel prizes in this in the, in the nineties and, and early 2000s. That's like, well, hopefully there's some more, hopefully there's some more room. <laughs> there better be, cause this is the most fascinating thing. And I just think it's incredible. And you're so good at explaining it and describing it in a way that, uh, it feels very relatable and hopefully people to kind of bring it all the way back to the beginning that maybe checked out of calculus and, or the idea of understanding rubidium held in a, a trap on the space station that a sub-Calvin state would go like, oh, I think I get it. I think I, at least on the on a surface level, understand like one second is a huge deal. It just seems awesome. And congratulations to your whole team. I mean, it, I just think it's amazing. And uh, yeah, thanks again, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. And it's good to catch up again. And yeah. Be in touch. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, please. Anytime. I know I always say that, but I sincerely mean it. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. And anytime you have free time, um, I'm cool. all ears. Very good. All right. Cool. All right. Well, have a good, have a good rest of your night. Thanks. You too, Dave. All right. See ya. Well, what did you think? I mean, come on. What are we? It's, it's sci-fi. We're, we're living it. It's a, an amazing age that we're able to, um, 
pursue those kind of experiments and that the people doing them are nice, down-to-earth, great people. Really fascinating. Really love chatting with Dave. I hope you enjoyed that as well. And if you'd like to hear more of the chat, as I mentioned, you can listen to more at, um, at Patreon. And it's just us kind of talking about life and things like that, which you would think we'd get right into it and be like, dude, tell me about the space station. What'd you find? Um, but at first I just wanted to catch up. I really like that he's such a great communicator and easygoing. And that comes up a lot on the show that we assume people at that level of scientific knowledge and intelligence are going to be hard to communicate with and or, um, you know, above it in some way that like, ah, I don't have time to talk about the average goings on. I only want to talk about my field. But um, I feel like Dave is very knowledgeable in a lot of different areas and just an enjoyable person to chat with. And then the fact that he worked on this, what just seems like improbable and impossible experiment it blows my mind. And I, I know I keep referencing it kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it does feel cool that they could win a Nobel Prize and that we as our little community of uh, people who listen to this show and me uh, would be in some way remotely attached to that. So anyway, keep an eye out. I, like I said, I'll share it on spacecave.com or space underscore cave. I don't know if Dave's on social media, or at least I forget. I think he is. So search his his name and you should find him and keep up with what else is going on in the advanced world of that can't be real science? <laughs> There's no way we as humans are pursuing this. Oh, we are. It's happening. A lot of bad things in the world currently, but if you focus on these sorts of things, it can really take your mind off of it. So hopefully that provided a nice escape. And um, let's get out of here. As always, I want to say thanks to Dan for helping with the show. Thanks to Rob Crow for the theme song. And thanks to those of you who listen, and especially supporting the show on Patreon. It helps with uh, music, tech stuff, beer, everything else that goes into doing a podcast. It's really uh, a two-person show with Dan and I here. So uh, that help really goes a long way. We appreciate it. Oh, and thanks to the people that came to the Professor Blastoff reunion, or at least came digitally. It was, um, it was a delight. Really fun to catch up with Taking Kyle. I hope you enjoyed it as well, and perhaps we'll do more. I think we will. It's looking likely that we will, but don't hold me to that. Um, but I think that there's a good chance. Okay, let's get out of here. This is a song by Becca Mankari. I don't remember if this is a Dan find, but let's give him credit anyway. It's called First Time. I hope you like it. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave. <laughs>